Greetings, this is Kurt. Here we continue with the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, share, and follow on your favorite platform. We'd like to hear from you. Simply send comments, compliments, and questions to our email. If you care to be a benefactor and help in keeping these complex productions coming, it's very easy. Just buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you truly for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is episode 17. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of... A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. The hooded man in black dismount and guide his gray dappled war horse into the trees. Go sit with the others. His cohort nodded obediently, cast a curious glance at the approaching visitor, then headed through the trees to the other campfire. It's about time you got here. He looked through the rising smoke at his employer. We've been waiting for half a moon. My men are getting restless. Flipping aside his cloak, his hooded visitor stepped around a small fire over which a suspended pot was boiling and sat on the stump next to him. Your wait is almost over, my friend. Calrond pulled back his hood and smiled confidently at him, his blue-white eyes striking, his frame of bushy fair hair glowing about his head in the firelight. Day after tomorrow, you have an additional 40 men. I'll need you to meet them halfway. And to bring them here. The other man reached over to stir the contents of his pot. We'll need additional weapons. A what? Calron quirked an eyebrow, then noticed the empty sheaths hanging from the worn leather belt at the man's side. We misjudged five travelers on the highway yesterday. They managed to get the upper hand. Warily, the dark mage eyed his hireling. Did you tell them about Gaywan? Aye, we did. He blew on his spoon and sampled its contents. 
In fact, I'm the only one among us who knows what your real name is. Reassured, Calron settled in his place and stared into the tongues of flame reaching for the bottom of the suspended pot. I knew you were a smart fellow, Sarnath. So, you have no weapons? Oh, we've got crossbows and a few axes, but nothing sufficient for battle. I see. Well, the two-score men arriving day after tomorrow should have some extra swords, seeing as they're coming through Raven Point. The stew smelled good, and he was hungry, having been riding all afternoon. He eyed the pot with interest. Is that venison? Aye. Sarneth stirred it again, then stopped, and with his dark brown eyes regarded Calron thoughtfully. Raven Point, eh? They've a fine forge. If you like dwarven handiwork, <laughs> I have little use for fighting blades. I've noticed that. Sarneth scratched his unkempt beard, reached for a bowl next to the fire, handed it to Calron, then spooned stew into it. Yeah, Forty additional men. That'll make it even fifty, plus whatever you got arranged at your end for the attack. I've managed to work out an agreement with the guild in Hopetown, so you'll have their help. Also, there will be ten mountain men. Sarneth's eyes hardened with disapproval. Mountain men? Just what sort of plunder do those brutes expect to collect? All they do is trample things. Which is why they'll be so useful. And after they've done their part, I've given them free reign over what they want, which, as far as I can tell, will be anything edible. <laughs> Sarnath scowled worriedly. And just how will you keep them under control? He wanted some semblance of a town left over after the assault, else being its new marshal would be meaningless. Seeing Calron's blue-white eyes focusing on him with dangerous intent, he suddenly wished he hadn't challenged him. You overstep yourself, my friend. Don't forget I'm running this little skirmish, and I'll include anyone and anything... I wish. I. He turned all his attention to his food. Seeing his hireling properly subdued, Calron fell silent and ate his bowl full of stew, then tossed it aside. After taking several swigs from the jug sitting next to Sarnath, he wiped his mouth and recorked the jug. In the morning, take a horse toward Raven Point and meet our new recruits halfway. When you've got them all together here, Make sure you give them the luck potion. That jug of tainted ale you gave me? Do you recall the war stories concerning the conflict between Longspar and Witchholm? The prisoner warriors that would not die? Sarnath blinked and frowned for a moment, then widened his eyes in horror as he remembered terrible stories of the Longspar legions facing their own in battle, the pagans of Witchholm, compelling their captives to fight for them with an evil brew forced down their throats. The end result nearly lost the war for Longspar, first out of hesitation in killing their own men, then out of inability to stop the warriors despite inflicting them with mortal wounds. An infamous account told of men who were beheaded in battle, their headless bodies continuing to fight until completely dismembered. This junk contains that pagan poison! His hand gripped on the handle of his axe, ready to strike down Calron and dump the stuff. He had no desire to lead mindless demons into battle. Nay, Sonnet. 
I have not the resources for preparing such a powerful elixir for so many men. However, this potion is similar in that it focuses men to a singular purpose, a rallying effect. You know how cowardly a hastily assembled crowd can be. True. He felt easier about the potion. The potion is the one thing that will bring your motley legion together, make them manageable. Now, can you handle 50 men under its effect? Now it was Sarnath's turn to scowl as he bravely met Calron's glare. You handle your mountain men. I'll handle my men. Unless you think I'm not up to the task. After a moment's battle of wills, the mage relented slightly and allowed a smirk to cross his lips. He liked Sarnath, not only for his strength and ability to lead men into battle, but also for his learned manners. He spoke well and could read, unlike most men who hired out their swords to anyone with enough silver. You're up to the task, my friend. I was just reminding you. The efficaciousness of that potion is high. Mishandled while it's taking effect, and your men might kill you instead of the marshal and his deputies. I keep that in mind. Putting aside his bowl, he glanced up at the distant campfire where the nine others of his band were bent over their suppers. Every now and again, one or another of them would look with curiosity toward Calron. None of them had met him directly, the mage wanting to remain anonymous as far as they were concerned. And as long as they were being paid and promised additional plunder, they had no real interest in bothering to find out who he really was. This thought reminded him of a question. Just who is this Gaywan fellow we've been blaming? A meddlesome and insignificant irritant. You can expect him to come looking for you and your men. You may even meet him on the road. Just how insignificant? Sarnath considered himself a good judge of character, and he had learned that whenever Calron didn't like someone, no matter how strong or clever or otherwise, he referred to them as small and bothersome. He and his brood will be no match for you if that's your concern. He will be in the company of a half-breed woman, a stunt, and two men. But he is a mage. Sarnath eyed him wearily. Calron shrugged, knowing it was useless to explain differences to a commoner between enchanters and mages. Of sorts. His weakness is his companions. Kill a couple of them and restrain the others. Bring him along to Hopetown. Alive. Once I've gotten what I want from him, you can finish him as well. He kept his tone casual, belying his actual worry where the enchanter was concerned. All he really wanted from Sarnath was distraction, keeping others out of his way until he procured the necessary devices he needed for his plans to be successful. Deceived by the dark mage's nonchalance, Sarnath grunted with satisfaction as he picked at his teeth and moved on to other questions. What about the fire powders? You haven't been experimenting with them, have you? They have no need for mucking about with your stuff. They're still under the tarp where you put them along with that jug of luck potion. He flicked a bit of meat off his fingernail and jerked his thumb at the humped tarpaulin staked to the ground behind him. 
Calron nodded with grim satisfaction, then relaxed. Bring those with you to Hopetown. I'll set them up just before the attack. And with that... He stood and drew his cloak about him. I'll expect you at the meeting point. If you're not there, I'll start without you. Eh? If you're going to attack without us, what did you need us for in the first place? I said I would start, not finish the deed. I'm an impatient man, Sonneth. He pulled up his hood, hiding his face. I will not dawdle about waiting for support when I can initiate matters myself. I need you and your men to continue what I start, seeking out the marshal and his deputies. Call it a favor to you, a chance for revenge. Though he could no longer see his expression, Sarnath imagined Calron grinning again. After all, you're supposed to be the royal marshal of Hopetown, aren't you? And so will I be. Reflexively, he grabbed for a sword's hilt that was not there, then glanced over at his men around the other fire and lowered his voice. We'll be there, Calron. You just do your part. That should be the least of your worries. He spun about and headed back to his horse tethered with the others. Watching Calron depart, Sarnath headed for the other campfire and considered which one of his men would be the best choice to leave in charge tomorrow while he was gone. In the off chance a rich traveler or a caravan of money changers happened by their spot beside the road, we wouldn't need to worry about helping Calron. The small herd of tethered horses regarded Calron with equine boredom, a couple blowing and stamping in anticipation of a refreshing run. Looking over his dappled gray, Calron decided he would need a fresh animal for the trip to Hopetown. Choosing a roan gelding that met his gaze passively, he transferred the contents of his saddlebags while mulling over the arrangement he'd made with his robber. The truth of the matter was, he had no direct need for their services, except as a distraction for Hopetown's forces, while he purloined necessary items from the Magian Alliance Athenium, stones and gems, where many minor magics were cast using words of command and archaic gestures, spells of higher power. That which matched the strength of an enchanter required the untapped power trapped within rare stones and gems. Individually, the stones themselves were not all that difficult to find. Commoners frequently found and kept their lucky stones. But to collect a group of the most powerful stones would take reads, if not lifetimes, to collect. The Athenium was one of only a few keeps for the most extensive collections of these magic stones in the known world. That would soon change. With those stones in his own hands, and then, if he so wished, make himself ruler of this entire realm, a wizard king like the old days. A scheme of such simplicity for a man my And all it required was a few moments rummaging in the Athenium, with Tremble wielding magic against marauding mountain men, for little else could run off a band of the brutes, and the 
Marshal, occupied by a skirmish with fighters and thieves bent on his destruction, the Athenium would be unguarded and the fox allowed to roam free. <laughs> Calron smiled to himself as he tightened his new mount's cinch, imagining the harassment and the questions Gaywan was facing as a result of his hired thieves. No doubt the man-hunting enchanter and his four friends, if not in the lockup, were already on their way to seek out these robbers in order to clear his name. Even if the bastard somehow managed to overcome Sarnath's gauntlet, he still would have been away from Hopetown long enough. Once Calron possessed the necessary stones, he would seek out the enchanter at his leisure, take the crystal that was rightfully his, and destroy the bothersome insect. As he climbed into the saddle, he wondered how Gunther had failed in his plan for raping Gaemon's half-elf whore and dragging her back to his nest in the lost city to keep his cursed babies. And the thugs he had sent to take the crystal from Gaemon had failed as well. A simple but effective approach, he thought at the time. Brute force was apparently useless. Drastic measures requiring powerful magics were called for. Thus his need for the stones kept in the Athenium. Of course, getting the crystal and destroying Gaewon was not the only goal. Another was seeing Garnet kneel before him, begging for mercy and a quick death. Any lawman who had the audacity to make judgment over Calron's decision to snuff out useless lives deserved, in turn, to be extinguished. Still fresh in his memory was a three-day ordeal of being locked into the town's stocks and ridiculed by Hopetown's commoners, while the depth of his guilt in the murder of some useless sluggards was investigated. His rage would not let him forget the jeering faces, the slobbering idiots making up Hopetown's nobility of the street, imbeciles who dared to laugh at a mage, throw their garbage at him, dump their slop pots on him. If not for a soft-hearted good wife who took pity on him, he might not have escaped the marshal's justice. <laughs> he snapped the reins and urged his fresh steed forward through the trees. It would be good to set the world to rights with a little revenge to make those simpletons pay for their error in deriding him, pummeling him with their slop. And all it would take was a few stones kept jealously by that beggar mage, Tremble. Reaching the road, he spurred his animal to a gallop despite the descending darkness, his mage sight making riding at night a simple task. Just a couple of details left to arrange, and then, in less than four days, Hopetown would suffer his wrath. A shadow on horseback disappeared into the waning twilight as a dark mage made haste to his chosen destiny. Chapter 20 hmm, How much do you know about Clough's past? Flaina ran a gentle finger slowly around her lover's ear, examining its rounded shape. As much as he knows about me. Gaewan's gaze meandered along the beams in the ceiling. Hmm. Which would be everything. The half-elf lay atop Gaewan, both under the covers, each enjoying the other's closeness. 
She kissed his shoulder tenderly, the warm afterglow of their love-sharing lending a pleasant sparkle to her affectionate mood. Their room above the tavern was dark and quiet, with only the silhouette of the mudcat breaking the wash of dim light from the window. Glink watched the outside world with feline calm, his sturdy pose casting a shadow of the unmoving sentinel across the floor. Every now and again, he would break his silence with a chirrup of interest as a moth flitted by or at a cloaked constable on patrol walking by on the cobblestones below. Hopetown slept under the waning moon, oblivious of the two lovers cuddling and caressing in the warmth of their bed. Would you... She gazed evenly into his eyes, clearly wanting to be delicate with her inquiry. Would you tell me what you know? Or am I trespassing on private territory between love brothers? He moved a hand beneath the covers and tenderly followed the line of her body upon his. I will tell you anything your beautiful ears desire, for my trust in thee is complete. She kissed his chin lightly, the touch of her lips on his flesh stirring new arousal in his loins, and he had to concentrate on her request. What exactly do you wish to know? You mentioned that Chania had taken interest in your mate to Clough's power sword. I, too, am curious about how he came into its possession. He has never said anything about his family. Just you. She searched his eyes of blue and gold. And him. Ah, you ask for a lengthy tale. Well, I have all night. And longer than that with the... She smiled upon him, doing her best to imitate Chania's queenly demeanor. It had the desired effect. <sighs> Indeed you have. Mm. She began to kiss his neck and cheeks softly as he started. This tale begins at Clough's original home in... in <laughs> I can't continue if you keep distracting me, love. He was ready to partake of her again. <laughs> she relented in her caresses and poised herself to listen more attentively. Yes, my lord. Now, of his childhood, there is nothing unusual to mention. However, when he was 23, his family decided to leave Thornhaven for Calidor, north of the White Mountains on the Young Continent. Flaina quickly calculated Clough's age in comparison with Gaywan's. Elves having a longer lifespan and slower development rate than men. And guessed they were roughly of the same maturity. The Bell Bay settlements were expanding, their fields and herds encroaching on Thornhaven. Thus, the elves living there decided to move on to more secluded places away from the rape of their forest. Mm. Men were always careless with how they cut down trees. Clough's grandmother and grandfather chose to stay at Thornhaven, despite their family cousins in Calador calling for everyone to join them across the ocean. My mother has strong ties with the forests. Flaina remembered her mother's infrequent melancholy moods during the growing season when she longed for home. But this was more than attachment. Clough's grandmother warned of bad omens for the sea journey. Clough's father, who had had a falling out with his father, assumed it was just a ruse to keep them homebound. 
He took his family on the ship, ignoring his mother's pleas. This was unfortunate. After a fortnight of an uneventful voyage and barely half a day from reaching the hidden coves of Calador, the elfin ship sailed into a gray storm. Flaina's eyes opened wide as a chill shivered down her spine. Oh, I have had terrible dreams of the gray storms. To actually see one physically? Her mind numbed at the thought of being caught in one of the vast, powerful sea storms that appeared with little warning and swallowed up entire ships without a trace. Legend had it the gray storms were spawned by demon servants of the Dark One's minions. He slid his hand over her back to warm the chill. So have I. He kissed her brow lightly, then held his gaze there as if seeking something. Her fright eased as quickly as it arose, and when she became aware of his stare, she lifted a hand to touch her forehead. Is there a smudge or something? They had been rather active this time. Hmm? Oh, just thinking about your question concerning Clough, and how fitting it is for tonight. Fitting? How? I must finish the story first. Seeing he wouldn't be swayed by her curiosity, she agreed. Of course. The gray storm's towering clouds reached from the water to the sky, their wind and rain so fierce that even the magic ingrained in the elfin ship could not resist being tossed about violently. Being young, Clough was kept below decks with his mother, but worried about his father who was on the rotating shift and was topside during the storm. Wanting to help, despite children ordered below decks for safety, he went through the main hatch. The first thing he saw was a giant wave breaking over the quarterdeck, sweeping several crewmen overboard. He couldn't see his father, but hearing a yell, he saw one sailor strangling in the rigging. Locking down the hatch, he staggered across the heaving deck to help him. Before he reached him, however, a rather large wave washed a good eight hands high over the boat, sweeping him and the rail away. He blacked out from the hammering force of the wave and remembered nothing until he came to, sputtering and coughing up seawater on the deck of another ship, with the suns burning down on him. His first hope of rescue by his own faded when he saw all the round ears on the men staring down at him. He'd been plucked from the sea floating on his back, his skin swollen from uncounted hours in the salt water. They pickled him. <laughs> Indeed. Someone on the merchant ship had spotted his limp form floating among some flotsam, and they'd dropped a skiff to go and retrieve him. After the usual flood of questions, he learned his family's ship had not been seen, nor other survivors, nor any other wreckage. His ship had been on a course far north of where he'd been picked up. The crew of this boat knew nothing of a gray storm. All they'd seen was a mild shower passing them by. Since this ship's destination was Cresden on the young continent, he guessed he might find help when they reached port. But after arriving there, he found no information, no trace of any elf ship that might have docked or passed by other ships coming into port. In fact, all he found were men who stared with mild curiosity at him and his ears, then scratched and shook their heads. No elf ship, no idea where this Calador forest was. 
and it was too far and too unknown to travel overland. So Clough decided to make the best of things and survive best he could. He took up roosting on the piers of the shore, helping lazy or tired sailors tie off docking ships. Every time he did this, he earned a silver coin at least. He let his hair grow long to hide his tapered ears from the more prejudiced. Two moons passed before I arrived on the docks looking for passage to Fellstar. The rest you know. She laid her head in the curve of his neck and closed her eyes while idly toying with a mass of curls on the sides of his head. Now, I come to the tale of the power sword. I told you of how Clough and I came to Bell Bay from Cresden as cabin boys on Admiral Bulkan's Sea Scout. Knowing little about the reclaimed kingdom surrounding his former home, Clough never knew we were so close to Thornhaven until several riads ago. One moon, while I was occupied with intensive training as an enchanter, Clough headed to Bell Bay and sought out the old trails leading to his home forest. It had been nine riads since he and his family had left its shores. He arrived in Thornhaven to find it almost completely abandoned. Looking around his old tree lodge, he found his grandmother digging up the last of her herb gardens. An elfin ship had come to offer passage to Calidor. She and a few others that had remained behind were preparing to leave. She had waited all this time for Clough to return, she said, but why? Clough's grandfather had translated shortly after the rest of the family had departed for Calidor nine riads earlier. He had done so peacefully and fully aware with only one wish to be carried out upon his death. Clough experienced a strong sensation of seeing what has been seen, and remembered suddenly his long time of near drowning, and a familiar voice that had kept him within grasp of physical life, with warm, loving hands holding him above the final breath of water, aloft on the bosom of the waves. His grandfather's spirit had been watching over him. His grandmother gave him a key she had kept since her husband's death and told him of a chest stored in the recesses of her lodge, instructing him to open it only after she was gone, for she feared seeing its contents would bring back memory of all her grief and loss. She had loved her husband dearly, and it had been his final wish that the chest and its contents go to Clough. With that, she hugged him briefly, then gathered her belongings and went to the hidden cove and the last ship for Calidor. Clough said several elves stayed behind in Thornhaven because of their strong attachments to the old forest, though he rarely saw them during his stay. Finding the old chest, he dragged it into the sunlight and opened it eagerly. There were many parchments of what appeared to be a personal journal and instructions for strange dances of which he'd never heard before. Also, there were a few pieces of jewelry, some old, rare, dried roots, and other small heirlooms. When he had cleared out the chest, he found another smaller box set in the bottom, almost as if it was supposed to be a false bottom. Within this was the sword and the dagger, the hilts polished bright, the blades clean and oiled. With it came instructions for the heir to the weapons. 
Apparently, Clough's father was to receive them, but had broken vows to his father when he took his own family to Calador against his father's wishes. With a little foresight from his wife, Clough's grandfather wrote the last part of the epistle specifically to him. It described the weapon as a rare device called a power sword, this one named Infinity, or more simply, the Sword of Infinity and its mate, the Dagger of Infinity. They had been given to his grandfather by a close man-friend, a freethinker priest. Each weapon has the specific ability to strike an opponent from a good distance by an instantaneous effect, a mystical extension of the blade to its chosen target. However, this ability of reaching beyond physical limits had to be one of the wielder spiritually before an attempt could be made to use this power. Checking the personal journal, he understood the dances to be part of several exercises and spiritual disciplines associated with the sword that were to help him attune to the weapon so that it became a part of him, an extension of himself. The sword and dagger perform their ability only for one who knows how to become one with them. There was little else said about the sword, no history, no explanation except that the secret teachings for use of the weapon were passed down by mouth only. Nothing specific about the sword could ever be written. This is the saddest part of the tale. His grandfather probably knew most of the weapon's secrets, but could not scribe any of it. I guessed this was part of the reason for his anger with Clough's father, for leaving them before he could impart his knowledge. So much like everything else connected to the Freethinkers. The secret words of the Godman can only be passed on by mouth for the simple reason that written words could be warped or misunderstood. That's why priests like Ablui are so special. Remembering what Chania had said about Durwan's argument with the high priest of the ancients, he nodded in agreement. Hmm. After studying the journal, Clough performed the ceremony of fire and water to bond himself with the sword, then began practicing the exercises. When he returned from visiting his old home, he gave me the dagger as a show of our affection for each other, guiding me through the same ceremony that bonded him with his sword. <sighs> and that ends my tale. She cuddled closer, pressing her cheek to his chest. Mm, what a wonderful story. Will he mind my knowing, do you think? Of course not. Anyone I trust, he trusts. Good. Now... She leaned up on her elbows and gazed squarely at him. What was this you were saying about my question being fitting for tonight? I have a gift for thee. His unspoken intent came at her like a wave of warmth. He had far more than a modest trinket to offer. Your love and companionship are finer than any gift, Gaewan. All the more reason for my desire to present you with something that will remind you of my devotion when I may not be near. He shifted beneath her, helping her move off of him, wrapping a blanket around her shoulders to ward off the slow draft from the open window. She watched as he removed a small bundle from under the bed and untied its thin bindings. This, too, was a gift from Clough to me. 
we agreed it was to go to the one person worthy of its symbol. He lifted a delicately crafted silver diadem with two semi-precious stones encrusted in the center of its semi-circular shape. Flina's eyes misted suddenly and she turned away. I cannot accept this, Gawan, for I have nothing to return. He held the diadem by its tapered ends. Tis not things that I desire, Flaina, but that which you have already given with freedom. Is this really happening? She stared into the darkness gathered in the corners of the room, blinked away the tears, then forced herself to turn and look at him. The intensity of his gaze made her shut her eyes as she waited for him to say what she wanted and feared the most. I desire thee as my consort and companion. Wilt thou accept this symbol of my deepest love and marry me? This man! She cast her tearful gaze to the ceiling. How he makes my heart sing and ache. At one time, I longed to hear those words. Speaking seemed to give her strength, and she met his gaze steadily now. You offered me your loyalty and shared the potion. I believed in that loyalty. Burning in her memory were the images of the tiger running away into the night and the cold, distant man she found hiding in the Athenium days later. You strained and nearly ended my belief in your flight as a were-tiger. Now, here you are again, with just as much love before. But look. She pointed out the window at the night sky. The moon is waning. What will happen in three quarters? You delight me and scare me. How am I to believe your words again? Prove it to me, without magic, without power. His simple request not refused, but reflected back at him. Gawan found the diadem in his hands suddenly insignificant, a worthless prize. An irrational part of his awareness felt ashamed, and he fought a sudden urge to fling the diadem out the window and run off. At the same time, he recognized the validity of her doubt and, considering the madness of his fever and the turmoil surrounding the crystal, he couldn't blame her. Her unspoken question glared at him. Will these challenges distract you and eventually take you away from me? True, the crystal seemed to present a lifelong challenge in exploring its depths, realizing its power, and how it might enhance his abilities as an enchanter and the ebb and flow of animal desire springing from his were-fever might threaten to overcome his rationale, but not likely. Any true madness he may have suffered stemmed from his revulsion of himself and his changing body. To reach out with what he expected to be his hand and come up with a tiger's claws was frustrating, thus it was easier to succumb during the nights of the full moon and allow his bestial urges free reign. And now the greatest challenge had been presented, offer true testament of his sincerity and lucidity. Marriage was more than an outer joining and blending of life's habits. 
It was a sharing, a bonding of everything that made each person special and individual. Such a thing was not to be tossed about like a festival garland in the fervor of physical passion, but tendered as one's own heart. He took a long moment to search for the best words, noticing that even Glink had fallen still and watched him silently from his perch on the windowsill. With your help and devotion, the confusion and conflict within me was resolved. As he brought his eyes up to meet hers, he became painfully conscious of the diadem still in his hands. It seemed heavier, yet he refused to lay it down. I... I regret. I possess only words and my actions since my fever to prove the certainty in my heart, especially since you are the only person to know me for my strengths and weaknesses, no matter how hard I try to hide both from the outside world. Tears rose unbidden and blurred his vision. With thee, I am strong. Without thee, I, I am nothing incomplete. I love you, Flaina, as I have loved none other. She regarded him tenderly, not untouched by his vulnerability, and searched his face carefully as they sat there in the dark with only the gentle caress of starlight from the window. Here was her lover, naked, removed from his material robes and emotional shields. In a world where men must exhibit strength and cunning, he had shown her his innermost feelings without pride, Unashamed to allow tears to wet his face. Motionless, waiting, he watched her with hope and desire. Nodding ever so slightly with satisfaction, she raised her hands, touched fingers to his, then rested them on the silver diadem. No one had ever spoken so honestly to her except her elfin mother. How can I refuse you, my only love? Yes, Gaewan, I will be your wife. He shut his eyes with this dearest wish in his heart granted and smiled gratefully as she lifted the diadem and studied it closely. The stones are that of my birth, coupled with that of yours, set in a crust of gold, overlapped with virgin silver, shaped in the elfin symbol of our two sons, symbolizing my unending affection for thee. He lowered his face almost shyly, and yours for me. She held the diadem to her lips, kissed the mated stones, then returned it to his hands and shifted on the bed to face him squarely. He placed the piece upon her brow, sliding the thicker, tapered ends into her hair, where they rested just above her ears, a finely crafted silver headband. Then he took a mirror from the table and held it before her. Mm. Flaina rejoiced in the reflection she saw, an expression of happiness illuminated by threads of silver and gold with mated gems of chalcedony across her brow. She had never before been given jewelry of any kind. 
There is no place for such pretty baubles in a village struggling to survive on the edge of the wilderness. She took the mirror from his hand and admired herself a moment longer, Mm. wondering how she might wear it without being in danger of it falling off when, to her surprise, a subtle tingling danced briefly across her brow. At her reaction, Gaewan smiled. (laughs) What's happening? Being crafted by elfin hands, the diadem is magically sensitive to elfin blood. It will stay where you place it and not fall off. How wonderful! It also means I am of dominant elfin blood. She turned her head this way and that, and to her delight, the diadem did not move. With a prurient thought, she decided it will be fun to give the magic a more rigorous challenge and placed the glass back on the table, then moved closer to her lover and promised mate. Sensing her intention, he beamed approval and moved her hair back to touch her ears lightly. She imitated his action, reaching up and rubbing her fingertips along his ears, allowing the blanket to fall away from her shoulders. She found it interesting how the more they shared love, the more sensitive his ears became. Both shivered with pleasure. He took her in his arms, lay back upon the bed, and allowed her to move over him as he pulled the blanket upon them. Man and woman exchanged deep kisses, hands touching the other, caressing their secret places. After a few moments, she moved up and placed a long, loving kiss on his brow, a reflection of the diadem upon hers. Further aroused by the vision of her over him, with the diadem sparkling in the starlight, he pressed lips to her neck and then her breasts, delighting in her erotic response. The soft sounds of love sharing were heard only by Glink as he curled up at the window and sleepily watched the night turn on. of Doom, Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. The sound plays of the novel were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2023. Character voices for Episode 17 are performed by Kevin Norris, Darcy Aradell Hotelling, and H, the Great and Powerful. The Quintology of Novels, soon to be a sextology, are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at lowest price, plus shipping, that includes additional bonuses from the author. Merely submit a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Francesco D'Andrea, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. 
Sound effects and original foley provided by freesound.org, Cusp Studios, and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.